Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the one, I think this is the one where we talk about this stuff we've seen since the last time we did one. I think that's right. I'm David. I'm Tyler. What have you watched? Oh, my gosh, jumping right into it. Um, okay, so uh, as I mentioned last week, I am, I am hip deep in, uh, in this Vincent Price collection you from You got your Screen waiters Factory. on? Oh, absolutely. My, my these dumb waiters. I know that's a different thing. Um, so I'm, uh, I've been sifting through these, uh, Vincent Price films and they are delightful. I'll be talking about two of them, uh, today. One is called tower of London directed by Roger Corman. Uh, I tend to think of Roger Corman as a producer, mm-hmm. but I forget that he started as a director. And yeah. so tower of London is an odd, odd little film because what it does is it takes the story of Richard III and blends it with Macbeth and then takes away the Shakespearean language. So it just takes these, these stories that we know mm-hmm. um, and puts them together for this just gothic, you know, tragic thing with a main character that is, I would venture to say, very unlikable. Uh, <laughs> you put Macbeth and Richard III together and it's, it's not yeah. great. Um, and so, uh, and Vincent Price plays, and he, his name, he is Richard III. Uh, okay. That is, it's, that's the official story, but they, they bring in uh, like a Lady Macbeth kind of thing. And the idea of like seeing the ghosts of the people that he's killed and that sort okay. of thing. So um, it is very good. His performance is very good. And I appreciate his commitment to playing a character that is not very likable uh, really at all and not appealing. Um, and a character that is a little bit weak-willed, especially in regards to his wife. And that's actually a thing about Macbeth in general, is that he always seemed, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, Macbeth always seemed rather cowardly to me, mm-hmm. or fearful at the very least. Um, would, does that seem like yeah, a, well, it's a, a, it may be a simplistic read, but that's kind yeah, of what it seems. There's a more specific word I'm looking for here, like like timid or trepidatious. Sure. He's, yeah. There's not, there's no real boldness to him. I mean, he'll do really bold yeah. things, but it's, he doesn't, he lacks initiative. Uh, certainly yeah, what is the, there's a word I'm looking for that. Yeah. The listeners can tell me. Yeah, absolutely. In the comment section. Um, and that's the only thing they're going to respond to undoubtedly. So, uh, so yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, and I appreciate, uh, Vincent Price's lack of vanity in playing that part. Um, because when I think of, Vincent Price, I think of, you know, a mad scientist and stuff, a guy who uh, has a command of language and a command of his own will and the will of those around him. And even if he is brought, you know, brought low, um, it is, it's a mighty struggle. Whereas this, it's just this kind of pathetic character as Richard tends to be. Um, And yeah, it's a really, and they have him in this really shitty looking wig and it just, it's a very unselfconscious performance and one that I appreciate. I will say that the film does get a bit repetitive at, t- uh, at times because it's just, okay, uh, Richard kills somebody who is opposed to him, starts seeing that person's ghost. He is now going to kill somebody else. And hey, there's a couple more ghosts. <laughs> it's like, okay, well, now I'm the king, so I'm good. Wait, somebody knows my, my secret? Better kill him. Oh, but here they are again. It just, it's that over and over. And so uh, from a, as a descent into madness, uh, I'm fine with showing him just being haunted more and more, but I feel like the tone of the film needs to 
be more manic if it's going to do that, but it, it isn't. It just kind of stays at the same, uh, mm-hmm. the same tone and the same pace, um, and just kind of leaves it to Vincent Price to pick up the slack, which he mostly does. Um, but by and large, the movie is 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 very good and one that I I think is a, you know. If you're a fan of Roger Corman, if you're a fan of Vincent Price, and I'd venture to say if you're a fan of Shakespeare, um, it's it's kind of an odd curiosity. Uh, Tower of London. All right. All right. Uh, Keep an- going. Another one? Okay, David, there's a film that I have been wanting to see for about 15 years. It came out in 1983. I had read about it in a book, and I was like, this sounds... 1983. Yeah. Is it Philip Kaufman's The Right Stuff? That's the one. I read about it in some book. Was oh, it was The, the right, right Stuff, stuff That's by the one. That's the one. Um, so, yeah, uh, and I had, so I had looked for this movie. I'll tell you what it is in a moment. I was looking, I had been looking for this movie. It had never gotten any kind of major DVD release. It was not readily available on VHS. It had gotten a VHS release, but you couldn't really find it anywhere. It's a very obscure animated film. Oh. And then our friends over at Warner Archive finally released it. Uh, and so I... Those guys are good friends. They're good friends. Yeah. Uh, you know, they always uh, pay for our, you know, your booze uh, when we're doing a meetup. Not always, but yes. Mostly. Or not all. I mean, it's more for the listeners. Yeah. I'm one of the people partaking. Well, in I the say you because Warner's it's not me, you right. know. Um, I think occasionally they'll pay for my chicken fingers. Um, so... The film is called Twice Upon a Time. Okay. Have you heard of it? No, I haven't. All right. I don't remember exactly what I had heard about it, about it is that, except that uh, it was just, it's animated in, in a strange way and features voice acting by a lot of comedians who improvised a lot of the script and then the animators went to that. Hmm. Upon watching this movie, I will say this thing is fucking crazy (laughs) it is it's like ralph bakshi if he decided to get rid of any notion of uh story cohesion or anything like that um there's also there seems like a lot of uh terry gilliam in there from an animated standpoint it also seems like something that would be out of a pink floyd video uh, it is extremely ugly. And by the way, none of this is something that I consider bad, but it's just, yeah. it's a film that is virtually incomprehensible, but there are just, the comedians are very funny as they're play, as they're creating these characters. Uh, the villain is, this should give you a general idea of who, of, of the people we're talking about. The villain is this guy who uh, kind of reminds me in a lot of ways of Tim Burton's uh, version of the penguin. Uh-huh. He's just like, just sort of a ball with legs. Um, and at one point he's uh, taking a shower. And so we see that he has a tattoo on his belly and the tattoo <laughs> is a uh, Nixon Agnew 68. <laughs> if you want any uh, general idea of what we're talking about, where was this movie released initially here? It was here. And uh, I mean, I looked it up and, and it got, it wasn't like a huge hit or anything. How could it be? But yeah, it was just uh, one of these very strange movies. One of the people behind it, not a director, but one of the people behind it was Henry Selleck. Oh, okay. Um, and it's just a very strange little movie. I don't know how readily available it is. Um, I purchased it through Warner Archive. I'm glad I own it. It is so strange. 
and it is, I won't necessarily say nightmare inducing, but it does feel like a nightmare. And again, the, it's ugly, but not ugly in that, like it's poorly animated more that this is somebody's, somebody is creating a world that is not pleasant to look at. And that is their choice. It is a strange movie and one I wouldn't, again, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it, but I wouldn't warn somebody away from it if they're curious. It's very strange. Okay. Your first film, David. Um, I saw a movie that um, comes up this week. My review is up as of uh, this, uh, this afternoon or early evening. I mm-hmm. just posted it. It is a French film called Marguerite. Okay. Uh, yeah. Directed by Xavier Galliano. Um, and it takes place in Paris in the early 1920s. And it's about a woman, a very rich woman, a titled woman, a baroness, who is a great lover of opera and um, is the patron of a music appreciators, appreciation club among where, you know, other members of the aristocracy come and it's catered and they get dressed up and they have private, you know, great opera singers come to, to her home. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she also sings at these things. And she is objectively just terrible, a terrible <laughs> singer. But she doesn't know that yeah. and no one tells her that. Because she's the the patron and she's sponsoring the whole thing, so everyone just sort of is polite. And um, some young sort of this is at the, the this is nineteen twenties Paris, so it's at the time of surrealism and Dadaism and that sort of stuff. So some uh, young people find out about her and start writing about her in the newspaper and start hmm. putting her in their cabaret shows, and they like are it's walks the line of are they actually appreciating her passion and like finding this to be a part of the, these new art music art movements and the nihilism and anarchy that goes with that. Or are they just making fun of her? Like it, it walks that line and the movie is, I feel like this is a premise that could be done. Um, and this is, you know, I feel like there's like, just like with American films, there's big studio American films and Mm -hmm. then there's, uh, other good stuff. There's like great French cinema. And then there's the French cinema that gets like, you usually is like the nominee for the Academy or that one yeah. who wins a bunch of Caesars. Although again, this year the nominee for the Academy was Mustang, which is a great movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a lot of, I guess every year there's a uh, one or two really shitty middle brow French movies. This is not one of them. Okay. Like this could be because it, the premise lends itself, I think to cutesiness. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, it's not that, which is not to say that it's like some great tragedy, although it is, mm-hmm. it's also very funny, very surreal in its, I mean, it's surreal things don't happen, but, um, the director finds shots that are surreal. Like, uh, there's one part where she's laying on a sofa, listening to a gramophone or phonograph, whatever. And then for no reason, the camera just sort of tracks to the right so that now the horn of the phonograph is directly in front of her face. So she's <laughs> laying on the couch, but with a gramophone. Hmm. And she also like collects costumes and sets and stuff from operas She and has them all over her home. So there's just all this weird stuff all over her home. And then she like, she'll like dress up as uh Salome or something <laughs> like for no. So there's all the, there's a lot of weird imagery that's, that that's funny and, and darkly funny. Uh, and it's, but it's also incredibly humanistic and sympathetic, um, toward her. And I really found myself, 
No, I mean, I, I, I was really surprised by how much I liked it. When I, when I knew what the premise was, I was like, I, I, had, I think I had my guard up a little bit. Uh, and it, pretty quickly I was like, okay, this is not the movie I was afraid it was going to be. Um, this is actually really interesting and really good. Uh, I have several questions for you. Number one, uh, remind me, what era does it take place in? Uh, early 1920s. Okay. 2021. Okay. Uh, in Paris. Um, so... That's okay. What, that's one question. Another is, have you read any other reviews? Do other people look at it the way you do, or yeah. do they see it as mocking of her? Uh, no, it does seem like the, um, I, I read because I, uh, it's on the tip of my tongue because I don't read reviews before I write a review. Mm-hmm. Um, but as soon as I wrote my review, I was like, okay, let's go see. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, it do, does seem like my, my read on it is pretty much with the, it promotes the norm among critics that are worth reading. Oh, good. Um, and the other thing that I was wondering, um, as you were describing it, the idea of these, these, you know, art students and stuff latching on to her, I found myself reminded of, and, and you're wondering like, well, wait a minute, are they making fun of her? What are they doing? I found myself thinking like, well, that's how I think about Tim and Eric. And like their show, and when they show like real people, like showing people that one could say are grotesque, but definitely have uh, have uh, a passion there. And I've always wondered. Okay, there, it is well, always can, made I'm me a little to bit of conversation about Tim and Eric because I'm a big oh, Tim sure. and Eric fan. Sure, but I understand that. But here's the difference. Okay. Here's, here's why I don't think Tim and Eric are exploiting okay. people. Is because. Tim and Eric are not making these people do anything they wouldn't normally do. Sure. They're not finding people they think are weird and say, hey, do a puppet show or do a cooking show or do these things. Right. That's what these people do. These people are performers mm-hmm. and want to be performing. So they're doing exactly what they would be doing, um, you know, in, in a smaller venue if Tim and Eric hadn't put them on TV. So to me, if... Um, uh, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to say this. Um, I understand the knee-jerk reaction of all these people being made fun of on Tim and Eric, but um, I think everything is above board there. It's tough for me because when you think about it, context context provides a lot. If you take somebody, let's let's say you have a, an actor, yeah, a guy who is very poor, but he always wanted to be an actor, and so he'll perform... He'll perform like monologues out on the street or something like that. I don't know. This is very, mm-hmm. uh, very vague. I apologize. Um, so, and he's not good. Mm-hmm. And they see a certain degree of beauty in what he is doing. Yeah. And then they put him on a show that everybody acknowledges as comedy. This guy's not being funny. By, but by putting him on there, they are simply by the context of what their show is. They're, it's not a variety show, no matter what they might think of it. It is put out there as a comedy show, and so no matter what, if this guy's not a good actor, he might be sincere, they might be sincere in their love of him, but I feel like there there okay, needs I, to be a... It depends on... I mean, I'm trying to think of the people in particular that you could be talking about, because I think those people are doing comedy. Okay. All right. And and maybe that's the thing. It's, it has admittedly been a while since I've seen it, but it has often made me uncomfortable uh, when I see people and it's just like, I, I can't tell... It's just like, I mean, I'm laughing, but I feel like I shouldn't be laughing. This, but it's a comedy show, so I feel like I should be laughing. But am I laughing at this person, at what this person is doing, or am I laughing at the person? And it's very, that's to their credit, by the way, that it causes me to question myself. But I don't know if that's their goal. Um, 
this reminds to get away from movies. This reminds me of a, a, a debate I had with my wife because there is a restaurant in Burbank. I'm not going to say what it is, where it is that I love to go to, especially on is it round table pizza. Uh, I no, love it too. Uh, especially Friday or Saturday nights. I don't love it because the food's great. The food's fine, but they have karaoke in the bar on mm. Friday and Saturday nights. And I love it. Um, and I, my love for it is not ironic, which is what, my wife initially accused me of, okay. but it might still be patronizing. Sure. It's basically, I love it because it's unlike any karaoke place that you would find in maybe the hipper parts of Los Angeles. Being in Burbank, it's like a karaoke place in the St. Louis suburbs where I grew up. Right. And it's essentially like, I think the way I jokingly, if if I were being patronized, the way I described it is it's like a theme restaurant where the theme is normal people. <laughs> and, uh, there is some walking the line there, uh, that my wife is, because she, she enjoys it too. We love, it. it's the only place where we do karaoke. Cause I'm usually, uh, I love, the, I love karaoke in, in theory. And then I always check it out. But for some reason that place, because everyone's like so unpretentious, I have no problem doing karaoke there, but that she doesn't has, sound patronizing. That sounds uh, like you you're refreshed by that. Just that's how I like to think of it because I know. do sincerely love this place. Yeah, and it's people who are going up the. You know, Graham Elwood had a bit that I always loved uh, talking about people performing karaoke. Yeah, and clearly, like the way they're performing, they just somehow expect they just they feel like there might be a producer in the back of the room being like, "Hey, I've got the guy." Yeah, you know. Yeah, um, and just. Uh, and yeah, and karaoke, if it's just, if it's literally just, Hey, uh, we're out on a Friday night, yeah. let's have fun. And yeah. that's it. That's the beginning and end of it. Like there's something, you know, refreshing about that in this, in this city. Um, there's a guy who goes to this karaoke and he's one of the regulars. Everyone's like happy when he comes in and on Friday nights he does, this is how we do it by, uh, Montel. <laughs> I do not recall. Well, I've always I know hit, the song. There's the talk show host Montel, and yeah. there's this guy Montel. One of them is Williams, and one of them is Jordan, and I don't know which one's which. Is Montel, Montel Williams, Williams the, is the host? I okay, believe. so I think this is Montel Jordan, and this guy does this song every night, and he fucking sells it. And he does it because he doesn't. He walks around the bar like he gets off stage with the mic, <laughs> and he walks around, and he'll like do the line in between, and then whoever he's standing next to, he'll put it in their face so they can go. This is how we do it, like. <laughs> It's so much fun. This is my favorite place. I haven't been uh, in a, it's it's near a screening room where that gets used a lot during award season. Hmm. So I spent a lot of time. I, I went there a number of times in the fall. So uh, after the screenings, you'd be like, "Hey guys, you want to go sing karaoke?" Um, not a guy, guys. Just when I would go with my wife. Oh, okay. Uh, to these, I would say, "Let's go to this place." Um, I haven't been in a while. I got to go back. Yeah, got to go back. Do they have the gambler? Uh, it's karaoke. They got they got everything. They probably have the gambler. Though. Yeah, the gambler's pretty good. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, it's, I'm sorry to have taken the the focus off of uh, Marguerite, no, but the reason that I, that I was yeah, it's mentioning it is because Marguerite. it a lot of the stuff that it looks like it's exploring is very relevant to today. When you look mm-hmm. at like YouTube stars and you look at stuff like Tim and Eric and the the concept of and and reality shows and all that, the concept of are these people being made fun of or are they just being given a, a venue where previously they wouldn't have one? So I don't know. It, it, it's the first place my mind went. I'm sorry. Um, no need to apologize. And invariably we will always wind up. And anytime I'm curious about something, we will arrive at the gambler. Um, <laughs> so, okay. Uh, I don't think I realized this when I was making my list that, uh, so I've got four movies. I've got 
Vincent Price on the bookends. Uh-huh. And then in the middle, I got two animated films. Oh. So the next one is a Disney film that I have never seen, and it is The Aristocats. I've never seen it either. Uh, yeah, I, I was not raised with it. It was not a high priority for me. And then uh, the other day, Jen and I wanted to hang out and watch a movie. And we had mentioned recent, somewhat recently that I hadn't seen it, so we decided to throw that on. Um, if ever there could be a movie to be said to be uh, minor Disney, it is The Aristocats. Uh-huh. It's a perfectly fine film. The, the music is fine. Um, the voice acting is more than fine. You've got Phil Harris. You've got Sterling Holloway. You've got, you know, one of the Gabors. I don't remember which one. Um, and uh, Pat Buttram, always fun to hear Pat Buttram. What do I know him from? Uh, well, he was on, um, Green Acres, but you'd probably know him as the Sheriff of Nottingham from, uh, oh, yeah. Disney's Robin Hood. Okay, you know? yeah. Sque- uh, I remember Roger Ebert once described him as he has a voice like a squeaky wheel, yeah. uh, which is perfect. Yeah. Um, and there are sequences in the film that I actually know him from Green Acres too. What was that? I'm not, I know him from Green Acres I've, too. I've, I'm not I've, a television dummy. I've, I've never, I think I've seen maybe one episode of Green Acres. It was not my cup of tea growing up. Um, or now, well, maybe now, I don't know. I haven't seen it in a while. But uh, I hear it's the place to be. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sorry, I'm just reminded of, I don't want to tell the specifics, but I remember I was like watching a Green Acres episode a couple of years ago, and there's just like a blatant, like, um, like Mexican racial slur. Oh, sh- oh really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I was like, holy cow. Not even just like a stereotype, like someone just coming out and just saying this thing like, yeah. oh, wow. You'll have to tell me off air. Um, <laughs> yeah. or, or just scream it. Uh, that's, that's how I like to hear my racial slurs. Um, but yeah, so the Aristocats, it has moments of, of humor. I actually laughed out loud at a couple of moments. Uh, there's some nice animated stuff, uh, like some nice animation, some nice character quirks. Um, but for the most part, it's, it, I found it to be super forgettable. I'm sure if I was raised with the film, it would have a special place in my heart. But for the most part... If I were alive, if I were alive at the time the film came out and I was watching Disney movies year to year, mm-hmm. I would look at that one and be like, "Okay, it's a placeholder," you know. Uh, as we are on our way to something, something. What, what are some other minor Disney movies? Atlantis. Well, yeah, absolutely. I feel like, and don't get me wrong, I like minor Atlantis. doesn't mean bad. Yeah. It just means it's not the first thing people will think of. You yeah. know, um, I feel like uh, Black Cauldron, I believe, is is a uh, minor mm-hmm. Disney. An argument mm-hmm. could be made that. The Great Mouse Detective is Minor Disney. I've never um, seen it. So. Which I love. That one I think you'd like. Speaking of Vincent Price, he's the villain in that. Um, I think an argument could be made that both Rescuers and Rescuers Down Under are Minor Disney. Also movies I've never seen. There you go. That so. should tell you everything right there. Um, and, and I'm sure I'm probably going to piss a lot of people off. Uh, again, these, these don't... Minor doesn't mean bad, and The Aristocats is a perfectly fine film that I think I just arrived at... 26 years too late. <laughs> so anyway, uh, so that's, oh, and then, oh, and then I do another one, right? Yes. Okay. So this is my, my last film. It's another Vincent Price film directed by Reginald LeBorg called Diary of a Madman, uh, starring Vincent Price, of course. And he plays a magistrate. Um, this, is that how they say that's, it? I don't think so. Oh, okay. That's how I'm choosing to say it. Um, and Man, there's this is a really good one, and his performance is is really great. He's this uh, this magistrate in um, in Paris, I believe, 
who has lost his wife and his son and he just kind of threw himself into his work. Um, and then upon the, uh, the execution of this criminal who kept saying like, I, this murderer who said like, I didn't want to murder these people. There was this force within me that was, that was pushing me to do these things and I didn't want to do it. A dark passenger. Absolutely. What's that from? Is that a thing? Oh, okay. Um, here it's called the Horla. Um, and so Vincent Price doesn't believe him. The guy goes to be executed. And, uh, and then indeed there is this dark, this dark passenger, one Uh could say, and it sort of attaches itself onto Vincent Price. And then a lot of stuff comes out about the death of his wife. He didn't murder her, but she killed her son. Their son died and then she killed herself and he, probably because he blamed her. And so like he like drove her to suicide. And so it's just Vincent Price dealing with this thing that is constantly whispering in his ear about the things that he needs to go and do. Uh, and then he develops a relationship with this, uh, very attractive young model. And, uh, he many years ago was enjoyed sculpting as a, as a hobby and then gave it up after his wife died. And so now this woman inspires him. So he brings her back into his life and they develop a romance, but this thing is constantly whispering in his ear. So there's, there's some plot complexity, but Vincent Price's performance is really, really marvelous. Like when you just see, when you see him responding to this younger woman who's very attractive and is giving him a lot of attention, um, and you just see like the small, like the little smile that you can, you get the impression like the character is allowing himself a smile. It's not a thing he does very often. And just, and, and just the look in his eyes, like there's a real sadness there and a real loneliness there. And it's, there's, there's a depth of character that I feel like we are not often allowed to see from Vincent Price, uh, where the character is not perfect. He's deeply flawed, but we're still on his side uh, and we want him to win out against this force. It's it's a very very good movie. Diary Diary of a Madman. Madman. Magistrate. Yeah. You know what I think of when I think of the word magistrate. I always think of I think probably because it was probably the first time I heard the word was is in the musical Oliver. Okay. The exclamation point in Fagin's big song when he's oh. like imagining like. What if I went straight and was like a respectable citizen and imagine and there's a big part where he was like, good morrow to you magistrate. Um, and that's always what I always think of Fagin. Um, musicals are good, huh? They have their moments. Especially when they just stick to being musicals and don't try to be something other than like musical. Like, like imagine when if someone to... wrote like a rap musical, like how embarrassing. Like, oh, I see where you're going. Yes. It would be so stupid and like everyone would be thinking that like 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 musical theater people would think that they're like into rap now yeah. you know but it would be like be this really watered down uh, and kind of embarrassing still very like showy uh, show tunesy type of rap music like a theater teacher who's trying to like be relevant to his uh, students yeah yeah can you know? imagine uh, i can't let's hope that and never I, happens i have to assume that would just be outright rejected by uh by the culture by wouldn't the, stand the culture. for culture absolutely yeah. not they'd be like you're not tricking us <laughs> exactly so yeah exactly. i get it um so uh last movie uh for me this is i watched a movie that is 100 years old hey um a silent film from you guessed it 1916 uh you did the math in time yeah. uh flicker alley put out this um blu-ray uh blu-ray dvd combo set flicker alley is awesome they put mm-hmm. out some of the best stuff and it's Sherlock Holmes, starring William Gillette as Sherlock Holmes from 1916. Um, I 
think th- uh, that this, if you are a silent film person, this Blu-ray is absolutely worth uh, getting because uh, Flickr really has, you know, so much in terms of special features and a whole big, like, thick booklet and great. And this, the movie looks great for 100 years old. I don't know if you know, but, like, this is a movie that people knew about but was thought lost up until, like, two years ago. Oh, wow. Um, I love as, that. As far as the movie itself, I will say this. It's two hours long because it was made, and you can clearly see because there's titles that show it was made as a serial like four-part serial mm. and i do think it probably would play better watching it like if you like put a day or two in between each part it would probably that it would probably play better because it does tend to drag watching the whole thing yeah um and maybe that's just like my modern mind not you being used to two-hour silent movies on the blu-ray are you able to watch it in a serialized way like there's chapter breaks so okay. i guess uh yeah i guess you you could I, yeah, yeah, I know you'd still have to do it manually, like okay. pause or whatever. I feel I think, like that's a mistake. No, I feel like maybe I should go back and look at the menu okay. before I write my review um, to make sure there isn't uh, okay. a way to easily break it out into four chapters. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it, it looks great. It, it includes the um, the color, the tinting, um, mm-hmm. which is basically just like yellow indoors, blue outdoors, because yeah. um, all the outdoor stuff takes place at night. Hand dipped. Uh, I don't do know you, if it's hand dipped, but do you remember in school that was a big thing that they talked about? Is certain certain movies would be like not necessarily, not necessarily at the time, but film historians were always very excited about the notion that like uh, a film would be hand dipped in the tinting. Uh, for, I don't know. It's, it makes you want ice cream. Oh, it sounds delicious. Don't yeah. get me wrong. I know I'm not supposed to eat the film. And yet somehow, what choice do I have yeah. when it's hand dipped? <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, I also think I'll, I'll say that, like, I feel like I'm not doing any favors to the movie because it's really an awesome, like the Blu-ray as an object for film lovers and, and collectors and stuff is very awesome. Mm-hmm. The movie itself, I feel like if you're a Sherlock Holmes fan, it's not as there's a couple of little clever bits, but like you want to see Sherlock Holmes be the smartest person in the room by a yeah. measure of 10. And this guy's like, he's pretty smart and he comes up with a couple of clever things, but like he kind of ends up like he beats Moriarty cause Moriarty fucks up, hmm. you know? And that's, that's kind of like, uh, and Moriarty is also, so, you know, I, I feel like the Moriarty I want is nearly an equal in intellect yeah. And this guy, like, is set up as that, but then just acts like kind of a brute. Like, he's just kind of a hmm. common criminal in, in his actions. What is Professor Moriarty a professor of? You know, I don't actually know. Uh, like, is he, like, doing, is he, like, a criminal mastermind by night, but, like, teaching classes at the university by day? Is in that the, in the new thing? films, uh where Jared Harris plays Moriarty, they do put it out that way that he is teaching classes by day and okay. then is like the head of the underworld uh, by <laughs> night, essentially. Um, and I've never so, seen any, there's two of them so far, right? Yeah. But there is going to be a third. I don't know I if there's going to be a third. No. Uh, I feel like the second one was received se- fairly well, but I, I don't know. I feel like, uh, yeah. And that was several years ago. So I'm not sure if there's going to be a third. I'd be okay if there was, I like that first one a lot. The second one has its moments. Um, okay. but yeah, wouldn't it, it'd be funny if he was just like a professor of, I don't know, like just uh, like physical education or something <laughs> like that. Do you, do you have professors of PE uh, there? I assume so. Do they have PE in college? I don't know. We went to film school. Yeah. I don't know what normal colleges do. Yeah. I don't know. All right. Uh, that's it for movies. Did you, uh, have any TV you wanted to talk I about? I do. What do you want to talk about? Besides the amazing race survivor. Oh, survivor. Right. I forgot about this. That 
episode. David, let me explain it to you. Okay. So this season, they have uh, before they before they aired it, they talked about they really emphasized how difficult this season was going to be, not strategically, but as far as the elements, the the weather. Right. More medevacs, more medevacs than any other season. Right. Uh, or at the very least, Guaranteed. medical emergencies. And okay. so uh, we are into the fourth episode, and there were no medical emergencies. And then they get to this reward challenge. It is a hot day, if I had to guess. They don't say, but if I had to guess, I'd say it's in the area of 120, 130. And there comes a moment when uh, all these teams that have to... That is hotter than I've ever experienced. I've never been in heat like that. The hottest I've ever experienced is probably uh, one in the area of 120. Because um, I, you know, I grew up in the desert, and then mm-hmm. I was I stupidly took a uh, vacation to Palm Springs in in July, no yeah. June. And so See, I've been to Palm Springs in June, but I feel like yeah, it, it must have topped out at 110, which is still okay. crazy. Yeah, that's but, ridiculous. Um, yeah, I think that's probably the hottest I've ever been. But I would take 110 in Palm Springs over. 85 in some place humid any day. Yeah. And that's the thing. This place is humid. And so, and the sun is just beating down on them. And there there comes a point where they have to dig. The teams have to dig through sand. Well, the sand, the sun's been beating down on that all day. So they're digging through hot sand. They're dehydrated in general. The sun's beating down on them. And so you can just see that they're, nobody's moving quickly. They're just so sluggish. And as they t- it takes them like forty five minutes to dig and find these three bags of uh, of, of like uh, like ski balls, and and then they have to go play ski. Ball. Then they have to go play ski ball. Actually, really, yeah. <laughs> and then um, and you get the impression if it were thirty degrees cooler, they'd probably find those bags in oh I don't know ten minutes at, at most. Uh-huh. But they're just like they're just destroyed by this weather. And then so the first team finally gets their balls. They do the ski ball thing and then they win. And then the second team and then the second and third team are just digging through the sand. And then finally another team does it. Well, from the first team, there's a, an older woman who uh, suddenly realizes like she basically collapses and she knows enough about like medicine to know she's like, I have heat stroke. And so the medical team comes in, they put an umbrella over her. They just pour cold water on her and she cools down while the the other two teams are doing the challenge. So then they finish and everybody's exhausted. And then this other guy collapses from heat stroke. And then another another woman collapses of heat stroke. So you have three that are dealing with this. And the guy and they the the other woman they managed to cool her down enough. The guy literally needs to be he needs to be a medical medic medevaced, pardon me. And uh just to see this happen, it's and to see Jeff Probst just call in because they don't, they really only have one doctor and a couple of medics. They usually only have to deal with like one injury at a time. Mm-hmm. And so Jeff Probst is like, oh, goes, Hey, okay. Uh, every, uh, every crew member you're, you're needed now. Mm-hmm. So we get like wide shots of, you see like 50 people, like just crew people just gathered around, like pouring cold water on these people. And it is, it is a a breaking of the fourth wall like I've never like I've never seen on Survivor. It was crazy. I don't think. No, the people the the guy who gets medevaced mm-hmm. is he lose then? Is he out? He is out. Yes, you can't come back. Right, that's what I thought. Yeah. So does that mean 
that they have to like not vote somebody out that one. No, they still voted somebody out. But at some point they're going to have to not like, cause they're budgeted for a certain number of episodes, right? And a number of eliminations. So yeah. at some point they're going to have to, I always had this, it's happened multiple times where someone has dropped out of project runway. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, whenever, whenever it happens, I immediately go, okay, so that means there's one more non-elimination contest now because they have to even it out to the right number of episodes. Well, it's tough because, I mean, I guess they would need a certain number of, of eliminations, but at the same time, they can just edit it so that, so that you'll always get the right number of eliminations. But, you know, ev- each episode covers about three days. Mm-hmm. Um, and then perhaps they could do a thing where an episode covers six days. Oh yeah. Okay. That's how they can do it. So. All right, but yeah, it's um, uh, it was it was a crazy episode. This season is is nuts. Um, I want to talk real quick about the Last Man on Earth, which made its return okay. um, this week with a fantastic episode. Um, so the, I guess a couple months ago, two three months ago, the the winter finale. You know, they're doing season two is being split. Mm-hmm. You know, fall and spring or whatever. So the fall finale, I guess, um, ended with it was a very intense episode. The the show has in its second season really started to remind the viewers like, yes, this is a goofy sitcom where all sorts of crazy stuff happens, but it is also a world where everyone has died and people, these people are actually in a pretty dire situation. And so it ended the, 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 the season one or the first half of season two, uh, ended with two major cliffhangers like at once. Um, and this first episode back picked up with one of them. Okay. So, and it was, so it, most of the major, most of the main cast was not in this episode at all. It just followed the one story and like resolved that. So I'm guessing next week they will pick up on the second story. This is something the lost used to do. Mm-hmm. Um, leave you hanging for multiple weeks. The, the walking dead does that quite a bit. Too. Okay. Uh, but it was, it's a really bold to do. Cause I, uh, I kind of exaggerate when I said most, none of the regular cast are in this episode at all. It's um, Jason Sudeikis, okay. who's been on the show a little bit. Um, I don't know if you watched. Uh, what, I mean, I've watched the first the first few episodes of season uh, one. Okay, well then you saw Jason Sudeikis in a framed picture in Will Forte's character's apartment. Yes, he's so you know that Jason Sudeikis is Will Forte's uh, younger brother, mm-hmm. as we uh, find out. Um, and so he's been <laughs> on the show a little bit, but this is the first episode that was just the Jason Sudeikis show. And the only other uh, characters are another survivor he finds, played by Mark Boone Jr. Hey, all right. Always great. And then he hallucinates having arguments with his brother, uh, Will Forte's character, but as a little kid. Hmm. And so the little kid version of Will Forte's character is played by none other than Jacob Tremblay. Oh, that's fun. (laughs) And so you get to hear Jacob Tremblay call Jason Sudeikis a... Uh, fart face and a yeah. flippin' turd, <laughs> and he gets to say, uh, "Don't look at my ween, you perv." <laughs> so all the thing, all the kind of things you wanted to hear Jacob Tremblay say, for some reason, uh, he says in this episode. So it was very funny, and also the show has really. I think, I feel like they made with this second season. They finally started to fulfill the promise of the pilot. Like mm-hmm. they made. Maybe the greatest pilot I've ever seen in the history of television. It's great. And then I feel like maybe because they're on a network, they kind of had to prove themselves, like establish their footing as a weekly comedy, like half hour mm. comedy. And that's and the, that's what the first season ended up being a lot. And so now I feel like that they're established and they got a second season. They're being allowed to make the show they set out to make in the first place, which is 
this very funny and bizarre, but also very dark and sad hmm. um, post-apocalyptic comedy. That's so uh, I'm really super excited about the show. I gotta. I guess I gotta get back into it. Yeah. Yeah, you can probably catch up pretty quick. Yeah. Okay. Um, How many episodes are in a season? Uh, well, the first season, because it was like a mid-season replacement, only has, I think, um, 12 or 13. Okay. Um, and then I think this season will be a full season, like a full 20 or 22, 22 whatever, whenever it's all done. But there's only been like 12 so far. Oh, okay. So yeah, we, I can yeah. probably catch up with that. Yeah. Um, and then we both watched The Amazing Race. That's right. right. Now, here's the problem with the thing that we recorded these on Thursdays and Amazing Race airs on Fridays. It's been a long time since I watched it. Yeah, me too. I watched it the night of. Yeah. Um, who went home? Uh, I want to say cheerleaders, but I know they're not cheerleaders, and yet somehow everything about them seems like the official cheerleader team. They're the models, I believe. Um, uh, okay. And it's the one where there's the flag challenge, and uh, just this team is behind everybody else, and then everybody's everybody's cooperating, and then when this uh, woman shows up, right. she yeah. she's upset that nobody's helping her. But the thing is, she figures out exactly what they figure out, yeah. right? yeah. So I feel like she has as much help, she has as much information as they had. Right. She just got there later. Yeah, and but that's the thing is people were, you know, not everyone was getting it right away. And so someone would be like, okay, well, here, here's the situation. And you had people genuinely working together, like teaming up. And she didn't, and so she would ask for help. And it was a very, it was a sad thing to see is her asking other people for help and then basically just ignoring her. Like, that's a sad thing to see, uh... But then when she said, well, I guess nobody wants to help the team that's in last. And I remember thinking like, yeah, yeah. you don't because then you might be in last. It's yeah. They've re- the herd has recognized the weak gazelle and yeah. left it behind for the cheetah. Yeah. That'll work out. <laughs> sure. That sounds right. <laughs> okay. We can make it work. Um, and so while I felt bad for her, there was this, this element of, and I'm sure if I were in her position, I'd feel angry and bitter yeah. as well. Um, but there is this attitude of like, well, why aren't they helping me? I help other people. And I just feel like if you were in their position, of course you'd do the same thing. It, to not help her is to guarantee you don't come in last. And that's it. And that's all that's important. Yeah. Whereas if you help her along, especially that episode where it's like, it was basically, there's a, there is one team that's officially first, but it's like an eight-way tie for first. Pretty like much, yeah. It is a mad dash once the train arrives. And that that's fun to see. But when you realize that there's only one team left behind, it is very sad. Yeah, it is. Yes. You're you've, you've nailed it. It is the gazelle whose leg is broken. Like, okay, we, we can't help you. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah. I wish that, uh, I, I, I need to like start keeping notes because I feel like I like when we discuss amazing race, but this season, I feel like I've forgotten hmm. everything by the time it's, uh, I do remember, um, hashtag bloaty. Yeah. Um, which I think is cute, uh, their little uh, budding romance. But my wife couldn't get over how weird it is that they're openly flirting with each other in the same room as her dad. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, maybe he, he does seem kind of oblivious to most things. Maybe he's not aware of it, although the other players seem to be making everyone aware of it. Um, but yeah, it's a little... It's, like, it's like the old I days. He's, I, th- I feel like he's the kind of dad who, like his daughter runs the show like, and can do no wrong. No question about that. So I I don't think that there's anything. could. Whatever you want, darling. Yeah. Stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which I'd still find cute. Yeah. All the teams are basically growing on me. There's, there's not, 
I don't think we're to the point yet where there's anyone I'm actively rooting against. Uh, there's a lot of people I'm rooting for. There is the one team where I remember this was two weeks ago where they had to put up the um, the, the the tent thing yeah. for the party on the beach in Cartagena. Is that where that was in Colombia? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's one team that was really not getting along, and we were like, "Oh, these people are so awful to each other." And, you know, like watching it, and my wife was like, "No, I think it's just her." Uh, you know who you know the team I'm talking yeah, yeah, about? Yeah, I do. Uh, they're yeah, that they're starting to get on my nerves because she is really just coming down on him hard, and he can do no, yeah. he can't do anything right with her. Yeah, uh, and he seems like a nice enough guy. I could see him being a situation, uh, being the type of person that maybe doesn't uh, communicate very openly, maybe because he's afraid of saying the wrong thing. But uh, yeah, but yeah, that team is not super pleasant to watch, even if it's just one person's fault. And it's like, well, it's your fault for not dumping her. Um, <laughs> and now here I am having to watch both of you. Yeah. Um, but everybody else, I, I, I pretty much like. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm enjoying this season. I'm enjoying this season of Survivor. It's just a good CBS situation for me. All right. Sounds good. Yep.